you only have those first fabulous few seconds, 30 seconds, seven seconds to get them engaged. If you can't grab them in that first minute, you've lost them. You might be able to pull them in, but there's no time for margin of error, which is why I want you to start either with your origin story, because stories capture and make them listen longer, or big, exciting numbers of what you've done so far. That's more for investors. Clients don't care that you're working with these companies and that companies, unless it's like someone that means something to them. What they care about is, you know, how you've transformed someone's life or someone's company. So make that hook about them, not about you. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question. Are you pitch perfect? Now, we all understand the power of the pitch, whether it's for investment, a new career-defining opportunity, or that game-changing client. These are the seven to 14-minute long sliding door moments that define whether we stay where we are or whether we go to the next level. However, once you've done the hard work, once you've got the right people in the room, once you've got their attention, how do you make every second count? My guest today is corporate storyteller and pitch alchemist, Donna Griffith. Donna has worked with over 1,000 startups, Fortune 500 companies, and venture capitalists from across the globe, helping them raise billions of dollars of investment, all through the power of pitching. Earlier this year, she also published her first best-selling book, Sticking to My Story, The Alchemy of Storytelling for Startups collating all of her knowledge from over 20 years, helping experts and business leaders become pitch perfect. In today's conversation, we do a deep, deep dive into the art of the pitch, including the most common pitching mistakes that we all make and one change that you can make today to avoid the biggest mistake of all. The ideal duration of the pitch, how long should your pitch be? including why you should always have a quick pitch in your back pocket in case your time is cut short, happens more than you think, or if you bump into the right person in the elevator. Why your origin story is the most powerful tool in your storytelling arsenal, how you can write it and how you should tell it. Why the very best pitches are designed as a four-act play. I loved this part of our conversation. A four-act play complete with a hero, a villain and a happy ever after. And crucially, how to close your pitch in a way that guarantees people will take action. You know, I honestly, I don't know many other skills that are as practical and vital to work on as perfecting the power of the pitch. Yet what always amazes me having watched 
hundreds, probably thousands of pitches in my career, having worked on many, is that with a few small tweaks and a backbone of proven structure, it's relatively easy to take a 7 out of 10, talk to me next year, and turn it into a 9 out of 10, can we talk about next steps? And that's where insights from experts like Donna, who have been on the front line of what actually works, are truly in a league of their own. Now, for those of you who are ready to take their journey in influence to the next level, do not forget, hop on my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my eBooks, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and only seven, no more, no less, and the seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your own level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes you to whistle a tune. On that note, sit back, caffeine up, cycle on, grab a pen and enjoy the insights from the pitch queen herself, the incredible Donna Griffith. Welcome to the podcast, Donna Griffith. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here, Julie. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Um, let's just jump in. I have so yeah. many questions for you. Go so for many it. questions for you. And Go I really feel we were just saying off air, I really feel like this one topic, the topic of how you craft and pitch an idea or a client or you know your team or even potentially even your family is one of the most essential skills when it comes to lifting your influence. This is where the rubber hits the road as to whether you can move something forward or not. So very excited to, to jump in with you today. Before we do, there's one question that I always kick off with, and that is if there's one idea that's having a particular impact on your thinking right now, it could be old, timeless, related to your field, unrelated to your field, but I really believe that the people that have access to the best ideas are always the ones that come across them first. So what's one idea that's really influencing your thinking? AI, baby. <laughs> I mean, AI, uh, baby. Oh, oh yes. yeah. It's, it's everywhere. Uh, you know, I'd say that. Well, I mean, I'm, my, my nickname is Donna GPT because I've basically been doing that for years. I like ingest data bits and bytes and in real time, like spin it out into pack stories and messages. And, and I've always said, like, I have AI in my brain. Um, but now I kind of think that OpenAI probably modeled uh, my brain to, to, to develop some of their algorithms. Um, <laughs> you should get a commission, 10% on anything. I, I, I need I mean, to I prove them. I need to prove that they did it. That's a little bit hard to do. And that's what like a lot of people now are struggling with ownership. But it's impossible to ignore that AI is everywhere. And you know, just like any massive shift that comes, we can ignore it. We can be scared of it. Uh, we can try to deny that it's there or we can embrace it and see how we incorporate it into our lives and, and use it for our benefit and kind of like, you know, it's here. Let's get used to it. Let's embrace it. Let's see how we can make the most of it. And that's definitely weighing on my mind. <laughs> You know, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you a question about that, but let's go there now. I, the last chapter of your book, you really, you really got me with it. So, 
you know, the subject of AI, it's on all of our minds, especially people, I think, in the communications world, people who work on presentations, pitches, videos, copywriting, storytelling in any form. Suddenly, you know, we were in this age where we were thinking that, you know, the digital world was going to take over manual tasks. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's come in and taken the creative task, which no one saw coming. Um, where do you see this going? Because, sorry, just to backtrack, the last chapter of your book, without being a spoiler, you the topic was what's going to happen when it comes what's to pitching. What's the future of storytelling, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then I read the chapter and I was like, this is really interesting. And then at one stage, and I've got the words here, you, you literally wrote, you know, this chapter was written 90% by chat, GPT, and Jasper AI. And I was like, what? So talk to me. Give me so, a 12 to 24 month horizon. I'm so what's funny that. is that, uh, oh gosh, I wish I knew that. I, I would, if I had the 12 to 24 month horizon, I'd be rich right now because I'd be able to help people better prepare. But I can only, you know, give from my own experience and what I'm doing. So when I was writing the book, uh, as I was kind of nearing the, the final stretch, ChatGPT had not emerged Jasper, I was around <clears throat> my husband, who's a real futurist. He, he's, he insisted, he's like, you need to write this last chapter about the future of storytelling and do it with AI. And I was like, okay. And, and so I started playing around with Jasper before ChatGPT came out and, and asking questions like, you know, can you write pitch decks? When will AI be able to do this? What's the future? I asked to ask about like 10 different questions and get like snippets of answers and then stitch them together into that part of the chapter. And then when ChatGPT came out and I had already submitted the first draft of my book for editing, I said to my publisher, I, I need to redo this and do it with ChatGPT because I have a feeling they're going to be the big like one out there. Um, and even with ChatGPT, it's like they'll give you a really nicely written thing, but you have to kind of be able to stitch it together. And I think that's my answer. And I did write that in, in the book and I'll, I'll do a little bit of spoiling. Um, I think the people that are truly creative and not just wrote like editing or, or just spitting out copy um, are going to be okay for a while at least. Um, I think I've got at least another two years to keep doing what I'm doing as I'm doing it and then it's going to be time to level up. The same way in 2008 I pivoted from just working with enterprises to working with startups. It's going to be interesting to see where the next pivot will be. Um, we still, as humans and as storytellers, and, and Yuval Noah Harari talks about this in Sapiens, our ability to storytell is what really helped us outlast the Neanderthals. And I think that that's the biggest run for the money that AI has right now. They don't yet have that. And it even said to me, you know, we, you created us. We don't have the empathy and the ability to see the full picture and to weave together stories. And that's where I'd say focus on what you truly can do as a creator, your creativity. Use ChatGPT. Use AutoGPT. Use the things to do the research. Remember, though, that these models were trained in 2021. So they don't always have the most up-to-date thing. This is, you know, they're they're actually able to now pull from, from, from current data as well. But Make sure you credential things. Make sure you check it out. Make sure that you don't just, you know, plop it in. Don't get lazy just because there's ChatGPT. And don't get scared. Just find your way to embrace it, to use it, to make your work better, and to level up what it is that you do. And I think also, if anything, it elevates personal stories. 
you know, nobody can beat you at being you. You know, chat, GPT, it's it's not going to be able to write your story. It doesn't know your story. And if anything, I think that the rise of something that is raw and real, the impact that that has is only going to get more and more because that is something that it doesn't have. It doesn't have your story. It, it doesn't have its own story. And so I think that that, the rise of the personal story for cut through is really going to, is really going to come into its own. Um, you know, I also think that Jack, the, the AI can only deal with what is, which is something I'm playing with my own head right now, because that might not always be true, but it can only deal with what is. It can't come up with something brand new. Yeah. 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 It'll look in different sources, mash things together, but it's not going to bring original content. And it's bringing other people's original content, which I, you know, there's a writer's strike happening in Hollywood right now. Um, part of it is people are running scared, voiceovers and, and, and all these things, but the way they trained was on actual voices and on actual content. So there's a lot of questions of intellectual property, but you are the creator. So as a creator, as somebody that comes up with ideas, you need to generate original ideas. And that's where the real challenge happens. Mm. Yeah. So if you're, if you're in the, the business of just taking what is and tweaking a little bit, AI is going to jump way, already has jumped way ahead of that. But if you're in the business of taking like threads of input and spitting out something wholly original and new, then, you know, that at the moment is, is irreplaceable at the moment. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, Let's get into the world of pitching, the world of pitching and the world of pitch storytelling. You know, you have said in your book that founders spend hundreds of hours on decks that don't get funded, that don't get the investment that they're hoping they're going to get. And I would say that, you know, the, the professional world and the corporate world would spend millions of hours. Oh, it's even there. worse there because then you have to have a meeting about each line that gets written. And then another meeting, another, it drives me bananas, like in that sense. Mm. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> And you just think of all these incredible ideas and all these incredible projects and all these incredible opportunities that live or die in the space of often, you know, seven to 14 minutes and why we don't put more attention on nailing those seven to 14 minutes, understanding them, understanding the mechanism, getting better, tighter, sharper. I don't feel like we put enough attention there, both as founders, entrepreneurs, or organizations in general. So let's, I want to dive because you are the, the guru in this space. The, what are some of the common mistakes? Let's start there. Some of the common mistakes people make when they're pitching an idea or an opportunity or for investment. I think that you nailed it within what you were, you were prefacing the question with. And um, you said, you know, if only we could tighten it up and really hone in these seven to 14 minutes. The problem is, people tend to look at things from their point of view rather than from your audience's point of view. We have something to sell. We know it's end all be all. We have a quota to meet. We want to close contracts. We want to persuade people. We want to get funded. And we forget that who's sitting in front of us, either our potential clients, our potential investors, our potential partners, they don't care <laughs> about how great our product is. They care either how much the product will help them, how much money it will make them, how it'll grow their potential reach. So we need to start off with like 180 degrees 
sitting down in their position and thinking, okay, if I was hearing for this for the first time, what would I want to hear? Like, why should I care? Why does this matter to me? What do you understand my pain, my need, my want? And that's where it has to all start. Empathy, thinking about the other side. So the biggest mistake is we think about our point of view and not the others. I think that's the top one. And just one of the, the things that I found incredibly useful in that space is bringing in kind of like an outlier, an outsider, and just going, all right, I am steeped in my own complexity here. I am steeped in my own knowledge. I am steeped in decades of experience and passion. Um, I need someone to sit in front of me and in you know, four sentences, tell me, what do you need to know? What would get you to buy in? And because it is impossible to see what's on the outside of the jar when you're in the jar. Oh my gosh, so impossible. And that's, that's like, I, and that's great if you have somebody who's a potential client or somebody that, that knows the space, having a conversation with them is a great way in. It's almost like, you know, having a focus group uh, for an ad. But that's what I come in and do with people. Like I literally in a two hour session am able to create their entire pitch deck for investment, for sales, because I'm coming in looking at it as an outsider. But at the same time, I have a conversation between them and their audience in my head and I'm like thinking what would they be asking what would you answer would they be asking what would you answer and then that's how the message gets built so it's getting built around your audience's questions mm. but it's not just and that builds trust but it's not just their questions it's not just here it's the heart and the gut all three of these have to be addressed so you need to think about what's on their mind, what's sitting in their bellies, what's what's irking them, what do they believe in? And then, okay, yes, all of the factual, tactical things as well. But you're addressing everything, but you want to start here. You want to help them understand, I get you, I get it. I know other people like you, I've helped other people like you, I've worked with other people like you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, you know, the real intersection between your world and, and, and mine as well, where I talk a lot about keeping a relentless, I call it a relentless question radar. Like if someone asks you a question, write it down. If you have a newsletter, someone writes in a question, social media, if someone sends you a question, if you come off stage, if you finish a pitch, questions like keep a relentless question radar because they are the largest asset that you have when it comes to pitching, presentation, sales, copy, content, um, all of it. If you can't base it around the questions of your target market, then you're talking to yourself. You're not talking oh, to them. Love that. That's so true. And and it's like really thinking, okay, this is a gift. That question is a gift. You can you can dismiss it and say that's annoying and why is somebody at but it's it's a reflection to you like that something's not clear or maybe there's something new or maybe <clears throat> what can I learn by this person's question and improve my offerings or see it as an opportunity to discuss it further mm. and it's easy to do that right it's easy to roll your eyes and go oh God. you know wasn't that obvious or doesn't that that doesn't matter but it, it your opinion of the question doesn't matter no, if that question is, is stood in the way between you and a potential and someone you need on side then that question is your business absolutely understanding and becoming fluent in it absolutely Let's just talk about time for a second, because I know, you know, you work specifically in the world of pitching, investor pitching. And, and sales pitching as and well. And sales pitching. So roughly about seven minutes, I know, in your world is is how long people have. Is that about right? Um, if you have an investor meeting, it's usually scheduled for half an hour 
or if they're super generous an hour. Um, so a pitch, if you were to go straight through an investor deck or even a sales deck without anyone stopping you, I'd say it would take between seven to 10 minutes, but they're going to stop you. They're going to ask questions. They're going to want more, which is great. If they're asking questions, it means that they're interested. They're not just sitting there. Now, if they're not asking questions, but they're riveted to you, that's a good signal as well. Like they're listening there because storytelling is so powerful that if you are able to get them to leave their phone and be solely focused on you for however long that takes, that's great. Um, so, so you, you, I mean, there's pitch competitions where you have a two minute opportunity, a five minute opportunity, a one minute, you have to be ready for all of these. I call those quick pitches. Suddenly they're like, you have a minute to introduce yourself, go. Uh, well, I better talk about my product, right? I only have a minute. Wrong. Wrong. That's the big miss. So let's go to that for a second. Um, I'm going to cover off quick pitches later, but I want to just go to that because when I read seven minutes and as you said, sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's half an hour, sometimes it's an hour. What happened in my head was I thought, yeah, that's how long you have, but that's not how long you really have because you and I both know that you have maybe a minute, maybe two minutes up front. And I will have done as the person who's been on the receiving end of many pitches and have done many pitches, I will have done, I don't know, 80% of my decision-making about you within the first one. Oh, hundred percent. You don't really have seven minutes. You it's, have one to two minutes. I had a friend uh, once when I was single and he, uh, he and I were both like dating, not each other. We were just friends and he had what he called the seven second rule. Uh, and he would be like, he'd tell people ahead of time, like, we're going to meet on a blind date off of whatever site it was. This was pre-Tinder. And if we both came and in the first seven seconds decided for whatever reason, this is not a match, we'll both go our separate ways. And I said to him, but that's awful. That's horrible. If somebody came and said, you know, I, I, I'd be so offended. But there is some kind of twisted, warped um, logic <laughs> Because sometimes I would get to a blind date. I'd know in the first seven seconds if this person was for me or not. And then the next 45 minutes to an hour, I'd sit there cursing the clock that wasn't moving and, you know, drinking my coffee or my wine, like, well, the time moved. And then you've wasted an hour of your life. So putting dating aside, um, thinking about that, you only have those first fabulous few seconds, 30 seconds, seven seconds, to get them engaged, okay? If you can't grab them in that first minute, you've lost them. You might be able to pull them in, but there's no time for margin of error, which is why I want you to start either with your origin story, which, cause stories capture and make them listen longer or big, exciting numbers of what you've done so far. That would, that's more for investors. Clients don't care that you're working with these companies and that companies, unless it's like, someone that means something to them. What they care about is, you know, how you've transformed someone's life or someone's company. So make that hook about them, not about you. So let's get into that. Let, let's get into this first boom, like get them upfront. I know that you, you mentioned a couple, I've heard you mention kind of two or three ways to do that. And now I'd, I'd love to know if you have a preference. So there was the origin story, number one. There was, I've heard you talk about the North Star. Mm -hmm. as another one and then momentum like what momentum you have what momentum you've got yes in an ideal world is there a particular order i mean we're literally talking about the first things that come out of your mouth yeah so i think everybody should have a north star everybody should have a vision statement 
everyone should know, and I always ask my clients, um, five years from now, uh, you're either being acquired, going public, acquiring another company, merging, something big is happening, and they're writing an article about you in the paper. What kind of company are they calling you? The company that did XYZ, the company that shifted FEG, whatever it is. You need to know what it is that, that you are seismically changing. It's not what you're doing now necessarily, but it's where you're heading. Hmm. So that's and I love that. So just zone in on that question for a second, because that really got me thinking when I read it in the book, which was if TechCrunch or, you know, name the media publication that means the most to you, writes about you five years time, what will they call you? The company or the person that did X for Y? What is your X? What is your Y? I think well, that as a question. The X for Y by Z is actually, so Simon Sinek talks about the Y. But then he has like the three circles of uh, the golden circles of messaging. So you've got the the why, the what, and the how. He actually does the why, how, what. I I I kind of take. I say what, uh, why, what, how. So why are you doing this? What is your end game? What is your big lofty goal? What is it that you're doing? And then that leads to the simple uh, solution statement, which is the we do X for Y by Z or Z, uh, depending on where in the world you are. And then the how you do it. And that's showing a user journey, some kind of demo, something that they, ah, now I get it. And that's maybe what you're working on now. But the why might be something that is way down the road. So maybe you have an algorithm that's gathering data and through all of the users using this, it'll continuously be able to improve until it's completely eradicated heart attacks or, or early detection. Just I, I worked with someone this morning who's working on being able to detect heart attacks. It's the number one killer in the world. And there is no the number one killer in the world. And usually when it's a heart attack in someone who's not obese, diabetic, whatever, it's like it happened out of the blue. He was so young, all of a sudden, nobody saw it coming. And that's because they're like, we go for a physical each year, we get blood work done, we, we, but there's no way to measure what's going on in there until something's wrong. And then the, like a stress test is very inaccurate. So what they've done is they've created a way to actually measure the, 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 the symptoms of CAD, which is cardio, blah, blah, something, I can't remember the exact terminology, cat is easier to remember, which is the cause of heart attacks. So it's not starting off saying, we've created this cat that does the wrong. No, it's starting off as, and, and he had a personal story, the founder, because when he was 17, his father had a heart attack out of the blue. Healthy guy, exercised, ate well, did smoke. So, so that's some kind of warning factor. And there was a history of it, but boom, all of a sudden in the middle, out of the blue. Nobody, you know, so these are the kind of things exactly and like you're going mm, probably thinking, oh, I knew someone or someone I care about or what if it happened? And that's exactly what the story does, because it makes us go, whoa, holy bleep, that could happen to me or that could happen to someone I love or that. So that's what the story does rather than, you know, start off with the technical side of it. It humanizes it. It makes it close to us. It makes us see like a, a reflection of ourselves or of other people. Oh, wow. And also just um, sitting in an investor's seat here for a second, mm -hmm. it would it would make me sit back and go, this is really personal to you. 
Like you're not going to stop until you fix this. Like where everybody else would stop where it got hard or over it or overwhelming or setbacks, you're not going to stop. You got it. you. You got it. Now that takes us into the origin story. So what I did with the founder this morning was find his origin story. And he was a little bit reticent about, he's like, isn't it too personal? I said, we'll build it in a way that doesn't get into too many details, but exactly that. It shows that you have a personal connection, passion. Turns out his CTO also same thing when he was 17, his father had suddenly had a heart attack. This is personal for them. This is their life mission. This is them. This is, you know, it could happen to them too. It's happened in the family. So those are the kind of things. And then in the book, I, ta- I tell the origin story of Cure Life, who have basically created a product that helps diabetics, that type 2 diabetes helps get their blood sugar level down to normal not to a good manageable level, to normal levels. And it started because Ron, the founder, his father was, again, father, diagnosed at the age of 56 with type 2 diabetes. And he went on a quest to find a way to lower this because nothing was working. It was getting worse. And anecdotally, I worked with them on their sales deck after the book came out. and, And I get the sales deck and their VP of sales and their director of US sales. And it's a pretty deck. It looks nice. And I'm like, Where's the story? And they said, oh, we don't have a lot of time. We're meeting companies like Whole Foods and this. There's no time for the story. I'm like, uh, yeah, there is. Slow, slow right down here. That's the only thing you need to make time for. And it, it, it's funny you say that because I had a conversation yesterday with an incredible female founder who's just been called up to do a massive presentation, game-changing presentation um, in front of everybody she would want to talk to. And her exact words were, I think I'm going to cut my story. I don't think I have time for my story and it feels a bit self-indulgent, but I think it's important to talk to the feeling of it, right? Like it feels a bit self-indulgent. It feels a bit all about me. And the feeling is that I have this time to contribute what I have and what I know and what I can offer. I don't want to use it, you know, running on about me and my life. Whereas the opposite is true. The opposite is true. And I love that word you use then quest. Talk to us about your quest. Why is this personal to you? Yes. And it's your life mission and it's your quest and it's your, this is what makes you get up in the morning. I'm going to detect heart attacks early. I'm going to stop. Now with Ron, with Cure Life, it's going to be all chronic diseases right now. They've started with diabetes, um, but they are going to be, they're developing a whole line of things that will also help manage chronic diseases. Chronic diseases do not have cures. They're chronic but there's better ways to manage them so that we can live normal life. And that's exactly like, that's incredible. Now get this, the VP sales and the director of sales both had fathers who were diagnosed with diabetes. I'm like, okay, you guys, you're going to be remembered as the company that the C-suite has everybody a personal connection to this. And you're going to put a picture of you with your families and your extended families and show how this has impacted your life as well. That's what they're going to remember. They're not going to remember your supply chain and what herbs are in and what dosage and all that. No, they're going to remember this is the company that set out on a quest to solve this horrible disease that's so debilitating and affects so many millions of people in the world because they had a personal connection to it. I want to, I want to talk about um, big numbers in there. So let's just say for a second, all right, I've got my, my why, like my big thing that I'm shooting for here. Um, I've got my origin story. 
where where do where do the big numbers kind of kick in because my gut instinct and i don't know if it's right or wrong genuinely my gut instinct would be i need some big numbers up front to either show them what the potential is what the current pain is you're losing x amount of billion dollars a year and you don't even know or you know you do know and it hurts the opportunity the where where do the big numbers come in or sh or am i wrong and they shouldn't come at the beginning at all your instincts are spot on because they definitely do have to be on now there's different types of big numbers there's big numbers that there's a big market like for example it's 220 billion dollars of uh of of economic burden on the u.s healthcare system heart attacks going undetected with the treatment and and the reimbursement and the the, the insurance everything all together it's 220 billion dollars that's definitely a number we put up front but we put the origin story first um leading into that this is an early stage company if you're a company that has big numbers in terms of growth revenues uh users uh uh ip anything that has big and exciting numbers you want to start with what i call the brag slide now, again, I know as women especially, but in general, we are conditioned to think it's not polite to brag, you know, and I, my story, that's so self-indulgent. And that's something that my secret, not so secret mission in life is helping women, you know, empower their voice and speak like they would if they were a guy and we could say anything because eventually that's going to happen. I have two daughters and, and I want them to, when they reach that point, not to give it a second thought. Uh, as a mother of a daughter... I'm, I'm hoping it's coming. I feel like it's coming and I feel like you and I and, and every woman in a, in a leadership and every man in a leadership position has a responsibility to make that happen. Oh but my gosh. Yes. I mean, and I, I co-lead um, an online community called Women Founders Unite. It's on Facebook of any women founders out there or funders listening where we, we match up women founders and funders. And we also just have very supportive conversations and so much of the conversations there are so supportive and amazing. And then all of a sudden, Anne Lai, who was a venture capitalist and partner, was just terminated from her fund because she came to the defense of women founders. And she put out a very, very, very bold statement on LinkedIn about what went on in the back rooms, something that, that people don't. So, I mean, wow, we need more things like that coming out. We need more allies. But anyway, going back for a second to the brag slide, we need to put aside our modesty. Oh, it's not polite. If you have big numbers, 10x growth, 40% uh, month over month, um, I've closed eight enterprise deals, our ARR is 200K a month, we're set to finish the year with $1.5 million. Those are numbers to be celebrated and yelled from the rooftop. And not just that, you put, you know, six, and I have a few samples in the book of what it should look like, six big numbers, and you've got them. Okay, now I'm listening. And also the same with, I mean, I know this is, it's separate to pitch for a second, but the, another thing that I noticed is testimonials. I was going through somebody's website a couple of days ago and they were, you know, we need to set up our expertise. We need to build our authority in the marketplace. And again, coincidentally, because actually it's usually more male founders that I work with than female founders. Um, but it was a female founder and I went down the website, right, 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 right down the bottom. And in very small writing, there was this incredible testimonial from Apple as to what and how they had changed the game for Apple. And I was like, what is this doing down the bottom? Like lift, like bold, massive, 
on everything. She's, I, and again, it's that whole, oh, you know, it's just, I want to talk about what we do and what a difference it makes. You, you, know, you can talk about that, but if Apple's saying what a difference it makes, that's done the work for you. You put in the work to get Apple as a client, right? Like you don't need to say anything after that point. In fact, you just need Drop to by. not ruin it. Drop by. That that's it. Seriously. Now that's another thing that is super important. We don't always ask for these testimonials. Like having written a book um, and it got, it, it achieved bestseller status in the first couple weeks, but getting reviews so that it gets pushed out is a hard thing because you have to remind people, not that they don't want to review, but they don't think about it. They don't think about leaving you a testimonial. So what happens with me is if somebody writes me and says, the session was amazing or the book, it's life-changing, I'm like, thank you so much for writing that. Would you mind turning that into a testimonial and putting it on LinkedIn, putting it on Amazon, giving them the tools to do that? People have the best intentions. If they love you, they are more than happy to do it unless they need to get legal to approve it. Like I'm surprised that Apple was that willing to go on a site. But even if not, anonymize the testimonials because if you're talking to investors or you're talking to clients, they're gonna wanna talk to some references. So you'll already have your champions lined up. I have over 400 recommendations on my LinkedIn, not, not like, uh, where they say your skills, not endorsements, recommendations. And I've worked hard for, to remind people to get those on there. I could probably have more if it was, if LinkedIn made it easier. It's very convoluted, but 400, like go there, talk to the people, write them. I can't make that up. They wrote it, not me. So that's it. That's what you should be. Let other people tell your story. A hundred, a hundred percent. All right, so we've got we're still in the beginnings. Yes, right here. So well, we've, we've got, kind of um, we've skated into a few like we've we've got so we've yeah, got the this, north the north star, and then either the brag slide or the origin story. The origin story can be numbers. Big numbers can tell if you don't have an exciting like somebody said to me. I mean, if I don't have a sick uncle or a dead cat or whatever, can I still give a good pitch? Absolutely. Talk about something that happened to a well-known company. Talk about something that happened to a client of yours. Take your client's story now and deconstruct it and talk about their miserable existence before using you and then what it looks like now that they're using you and what the results are because that tells a very clear story. I mean, you can also use, it's not the ideal scenario, but it's still fairly impactful. You can also use kind of, I'm going to call it hypotheticals, which is, you know, this is a $20 trillion issue. I want to talk to you about company John Smith. Now, just imagine for a moment, company John Smith is one of these companies having the issue. They do this at the moment. They're having these challenges. Now, yes, I'm building a hypothetical, but it's anchored in reality because you've already set it up that this many people are struggling. So I'm Absolutely. just going to give you an example of yes. how they're struggling. Yes. Yes. And if it's a real, if John Smith is a real company that you worked with or worked for, great. If you need to do an as if that works too, but you don't want to do, this is John, John, no, no, no. it looks a little bit cheesy. You want to try to have it as realistic as possible. Hmm. Um, so we've got, um, we've got the the credibility, we've got the the likability, um, and we've got the momentum. And this is just at the beginning, as I said, we've spent so much time on this because this is the most important part of your entire pitch. Like get this wrong. It doesn't matter by and large what you say after this point. So 
we've done that. We've got their attention. They're in. They like you. They understand why you're passionate. They understand where you're going and they understand the traction that you've already got. Boom. Now I want to talk about um, chunking when it comes to storytelling because, again, another intersection between your world and mine, a big part of, of what I do and, and what we do is, is take messaging and chunk it. Like people understand information in chunks. How does chunking work when it comes to pitching? So um, I think of it as a four-act play. I've, I've always been a theater baby ever since I could basically talk and I acted and I, I fell in love going to shows and, uh, and, and I grew up, my father would take me to Broadway shows. He lived in New York and, and developed a real true love for the theater. <clears throat> and the classic plays are divided into like three or four acts. Today, they've kind of made it into two acts because then there's an intermission in the middle. Um, and this is, this is thousands of years of writing that did this way and it's constructed the way we are conditioned to take in the world. Now with young kids, they learn how to communicate with the world through storytelling, through telling them the same story again and again, mommy, read it again, mommy, read it again, because they're learning, they're learning from it. And then they go to school and that completely gets messed up because they start throwing in terminology and, and all these things. So I'm saying, let's go back to the basic primal structure that our cave brain is used to taking in. And when I say cave, cave paintings were the very first recorded stories before we even had language. These, these cave paintings of 36,000 years ago started to tell a story of something that happened that then sustained over the years. And then that went into hieroglyphics and then into say fables and Greek tragedies. And then finally the printing press broadcast and then we're back today at TikTok and Instagram and stories and suddenly we're doing little cave paintings again, which is why people love it so much because it, it's so much entrenched in how our brain is structured. So going back to your question, there's four acts of a play. There's four acts to an investor pitch or a sales pitch. The first one, no surprise there, is the problem, the pain, or as I call it, the villain, the bad guy. And it's whatever is weighing on them. For an investor, it would be motivating the pain of your audience. For a customer, it would be the pain they're dealing with. Then comes the hero. Act two is all about your solution, your hero. Now, I always say that there's, you know, a, a, a hero is only as good as their villain. And a couple of weeks ago when I was giving a workshop, I kind of thought of it like, the hero is the moon, but the villain is the sun. And the moon only shines when the sun is, re it's a reflection of it. So that villain is giving us the light that we need to show how beautiful and glowing we are. So what is it that you're doing? Show us, show us the how, show us how it works. Take us on a journey. We're visual creatures we need to see. Then comes the business data. Now, yes, we might have teased a few numbers at the beginning, but this is now the nitty gritty of the business plan, like your, your um, go-to-market strategies and your market analysis and your competitive landscape. And then finally, act four is the vision for the future. What happens after the hero has successfully defeated the villain? Where does he go from there or she go from there? What will be bigger markets, other products, other things in the pipeline, your big vision. So if you started with your big vision and your North Star, this is the time to tie it up nicely at the end. Now that you've taken this journey with me with what our product is doing, we're going to go even further. And this is what it's going to look like. 
let's go back to the villain for a second. I love that, you know, there is a narrative structure, like you said, that through the ages we are wired to engage with, to sink into, to to want to take action on. Why not just work with the wiring? You know, work with the the, the primordial wiring that exists. So talk to me about the villain. Can you give me an example? Because when I read about the villain in your book and I was thinking, okay, is that villain your competitors? Is that villain the problem? Is the, Give me an example of a villain. So the villain is the problem. So going back to what I talked about before with the heart attack, the villain is that heart attacks are the biggest killer, but the real villain is there's no, there's a gap. There's no way to detect it early. That's the villain. The villain is that, 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 that we're missing something. We're missing a solution in there. Um, just to, like, I'm, I'm watching a new action series now with my husband called Citadel, and it, it's uh, Priyanka Sharma Jonas. So now it drew me in right away. And I don't always get like swept into new series, but it did. And if you notice, in the first few minutes, Something happened. A villainous act happened. It wasn't just a little love story with, you know, it started, it almost looked like there'd be a little love story. Boom, the action came in. Boom, the villain. Now, we don't know who the villain is yet. We just met a villainous act, but we're kind of on the edge of our seats to see what the heck is going on here. And then there were the twists and the turns, but that those first few minutes of the villain or the villainous act, oh, I'm going to keep watching. I want to know what's going on here. And you use this beautiful language in the book, which is solving an epic conflict. Like what is the, which goes back to that quest languaging again, right? Like what is the epic conflict you are here to solve? Yes. Yes. So diabetes, um, that there's no way for people to manage it and live a normal lifestyle. That's the villain. Uh, okay. Those are very health, but another the example I give in my book is the eat with story, the Suvlaki story, which is not, you know, changing world order or, or, or curing diseases, but he taught, tells the story of being on his honeymoon and not being able to find authentic local food. And it's, it's a bummer. And how many of us have gone on vacation? Like we were just in Spain and all you could see were these tacky paella signs. And I'm like, I'm not eating there. I want to eat the places that are like the little, you know, hidden gems. That and and eat with gave people an opportunity to be hosted at someone's home, and actually have like a local. They were acquired. It's still around. They were acquired by Viz in 2017. But you can actually be traveling, and schedule a meal in someone's home. You pay for it like you would a restaurant, and you get to taste their local cuisine and kind of experience a local family dinner. So, so what was the pain there? What was the villain there? Inauthentic. I'm a tourist and I'm treated like a tourist. Again, that's that's more of a vitamin, not a, a but it's still like, yeah, when we go and travel, we don't want just the Disney part. We want the nitty gritty underneath part. And also, you know, we are prepared to pay more. You know, we are prepared to pay more for a meal in somebody's home with an authentic experience, you know, sitting by a fire pit. It's the highlight of everything because it's what you're gonna remember. And to me, experiences, and, and he actually then, um, after he was acquired, they weren't acquired by Airbnb, but he spent several years starting the Airbnb experiences. They hired him to do that. 
So when I think about trips that we've taken, and, and also we don't buy presents for each other, my husband and I, we do experiences. So we're like, we'll do something together to mark an occasion. It's so much more alive because you remember what you did, not a trinket or a bauble or, or, or what, not that there's anything wrong with it. Presents are nice, but it's like the meaning behind it that we remember. All right, so we've got, we've got the villain, got that part. Then we get into the solution, which is the hero. So you, and I, and I think this is worth saying as well. And I spoke to Nancy Duarte um, out of Silicon Valley, you know, Nancy. And so behind an inconvenient truth and, and many, many others. And she said this too, she said, you know, you are not the hero of, of your story. Like you, you're not the hero of your story. And the again, villain is the hero, but you, 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 you are <laughs> the, hero. the hero. And then is your product <clears throat> then the hero, your product or service becomes the hero? I, that's my take on it. So the villain is the gap, the need, the, 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 the hole, and your product is the hero that will solve that need. And that people are going to eventually adopt and be using as their go-to solution for it. That's, that's the level you want. And that's where the features and benefits come in. So after you do your simple solution statement, we do X for Y by Z or by Z, um, then you want to show it. So you want to give them a good two, three minute glimpse into, or even one minute if you can, what, how it works. And you want to intersperse cool wow features in the showing of it because then it brings it to life instead of just doing a list of this feature, that feature, that feature, that feature, and it sounds like a grocery list. Show off the features, leave them wanting to hear more. And then you can do a slide about benefits and you probably have benefits for your end user, for maybe the business is selling them, or in the case of like medical, also the insurers, you've got the payers, the providers, which would be the doctors and the patients. So the three P's are the beneficiaries of it and they each have benefits. So you could talk about the benefits for the three audiences. All right. So we've got, we've got the villain, the hero, the hero's plan of action. And then I got that right. Yes, what happens next? Like the, the, the aftermath. So great, now the hero has conquered this villain. What happens from here? How do we now make this the go-to, the gold standard of, of other realms? So we kill the villain like that, but there's other villains out there that are similar. So we've got diabetes, but we've also got um, heart disease and cancer and all of these other things. So another, I, I, I tend to work with a lot of life sciences. I love life science. So I worked with an amazing company uh, called Neurosense and they're creating um, treatments that slow down neurodegenerative diseases, starting with ALS, part, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is just debilitating and awful, but they've already started moving into Parkinson's and they'll do Alzheimer's as well. And I keep getting their updates on their clinical trials and it's just nothing short of amazing and inspiring. But uh, again, there's an origin story that, 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 that came there. And if you can show, okay, we are conquering right now ALS, but that's just the beginning because there's a whole family of cousins of these villain that need to be taken down. And a villain doesn't usually operate solo. They come from a cartel, they come from a gang and you gotta be able to then tackle these in different places. I think I want to drill into the kind of the health life, life sciences, health life sciences part, not because, you know, that's a particular specialty, but I think it speaks to something that a lot of people struggle with, which is making the complex simple. 
And especially when you're dealing with technology, when you're dealing with medical, and it's really hard to step outside of our own jargon because we also have a responsibility to be true to the facts, to the exact terminology. Um, and we're steeped in it, right? It's our language, it's how we speak. How do we go about bridging that gap between making the complex simple enough for somebody able to get and run with and repeat, but while still doing justice? So my very first startup client was a cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, and I started off working with on his, his professional speeches and then he had two medical devices he had created. And he said he, he had been invited to give five minute pitches about each company to a big angel convention. Could I help him with that? And that was my first foray into startups. And we had five minutes to build it. Now, when I first got the presentation from him, it looked like it pages that had been ripped from a medical journal. I, I kid you not. And just like, you know, popped up onto a slide. I'm sure you've seen many. I, I can see this one. A lot of you out there have seen that too. And we had to peel away the layers of jargon. Now, if you're talking to doctors or medical staff, that's another thing. But when you're talking to investors, and I always ask, okay, are your investors going to be experts or are they just lay people that, that you know, know just enough like I do. I, I know of heart attacks and I know that it's bad, and I'm, but all of the, the inner working. So, and then what we do is I, use my GPT to kind of break down what they're saying. And then if I'm able to explain it in a way that I understand that it's clear, I know anybody else will. So it's peeling away the layers of the onion until you get to that core of, ah, so what you're doing is ABC. Got it. XYZ. That's exactly what you're doing. Got it. All of the terminology, all of the technical pieces, all of that, there'll be time to dig deeper into that and ask. In an initial meeting, you're not gonna go into that. And I love, you know, for anyone who's listening, who just heard you say you go into ChatGPT, what you meant there is your own brain. Like yeah. the, your- <laughs> GPT you, mode, you are, Donna GPT mode. <laughs> <laughs> you are the, the vehicle there. Um, all right, so we've got the, we've got taking the complex and making it simple using real human language, um, in simple statements that, that someone can understand. I wanna talk about taking action because the other thing that I find is a massive gap in this space often is you have the best presentation in the world, the best pitch in the world. You're amazing, you're captivating, you're telling stories, I'm completely in, you know, I'm, I'm ready. And then nothing happens at the end that makes me take any particular action. And then 24 hours from now, I'm distracted. I've forgotten about it. The next thing happens that is, you know, juicy and exciting. How do we close our pitches to get people to at least take some action, some movement forward? That's an excellent question. And the most important thing, and I used to teach courses called presenting for action and writing for action within big organizations, because usually within big organizations, we'll give like an 80 slide pitch, and then end with no action item. So first of all, you wanna think what the big action is that you want, like at the end. So if you're pitching to a client, you want them to sign a contract with you, that's great, that's usually not gonna happen after the first meeting. So what's the first step they can take in that? Is it schedule a meeting with the IT department? Is it send a RFP, a request for proposal? Is it that? So get one step done, one step closer. So you're breaking down your big action into smaller bite-sized 
steps. All right, when it comes to investor pitching, most likely they're not gonna pull out their checkbook and write you a check on the spot, okay? But if they say at the end, can you please send me this deck uh, as a send out? I wanna present it to my partners or I'd like to schedule a meeting with my partners or um, I'm gonna be sending one of our technical due diligence to, to have a conversation with you. So you know that there's gonna be a future, but if they don't say it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't mean it. You need to initiate the action, you know, follow up, thank you. If you don't hear back, you know, follow up every three, four days, couple times, try to find something new, thank them for their time. After four times, if they haven't answered, it's most likely, you know, no for now. But you need to get, you need to know what you want the action to be and then put them on your update list. Keep them updated quarterly on how great you're doing. And then don't be surprised if suddenly you get a phone call or an email. Hey, how are you? We haven't talked in so long. And then play along. Don't be like, oh, now you want to talk? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. oh interesting. Now yeah, you're interested. Yeah, now you're interested. Huh? How about that? Talk to me about how, how you know you're ready. Because that's another thing, right? Like how to know when we're ready when our idea is pitch worthy because go too soon people won't come back they won't sit through it again and we burn bridges go too late and you've missed your window of opportunity are there some key indicators as to when your idea or your product or your service or your company is pitch ready yeah so i i wrote a chapter like right before i go into the whole method like are you really ready to raise and, and my publisher, when, when I handed it, he's like, are you sure you want to put that there? That's kind of like telling them, don't read the book now. And I said, listen, I can't, I have to be true to what I know because I have had to fire clients if they weren't ready. I think of myself in a way of like a chef and I say, bring me this ingredient, that ingredient, that ingredient. I send them a laundry, they bring it to me and then I cook them a beautiful meal that they walk away with and can then eat or serve. Uh, and, and it's the meal that keeps on serving. But if I have to work with like half a lemon, half a package of Chinese takeout and some soy sauce, I can't cook a gourmet meal, even if I try maybe some baking soda. That's like what you, what you see in a single guy's fridge. Can't do that. So if you don't have all the ingredients, if you don't know, like yesterday, I spoke to someone who invented a new type of uh, bartending automated thing. He's like, yeah, and I have it in the prototype and it's really cool and it does something like, wow, I'd love to have one of those. So do you have IP? Do you have a patent? No. Do you know if you're gonna be selling this to bars or to cafes or to, no. Do, okay, so I think I wanna give it a try and, and show it off to like music festivals and whatever, I'm like, that sounds amazing, but you're not ready to raise funding yet. You need to, I would go to an accelerator and get some guidance. Really know your market. Look at other similar automated things like the baby formula thing that mixes the bottles automatically or the coffee machines or, or anything that has automated a manual process that like mixes it together. I had another client called Ripples where they, have, they, they print on your beer or your cocktail or your coffee picture of you or a logo or a slogan. They had a whole thing with Guinness. Um, so, but that's an actual machine that sits in a bar. And I said, you're not ready to raise yet. 
you need to go do your homework. You need to go know what your market is, what your competitors are, get some patent protection, and then come back to me when, and then you'll say, oh, now I see what she's talking about. And when we talk a year from now, hopefully you'll be much more ready. You just made me think then about the importance of metaphors on occasion, you know, to, to be able to, to take something that is known and compare yourself in likeness to the known. So we are the Uber of um, bread. <laughs> Uber of <laughs> you know? <us>. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many times are people out there saying we are the Uber of right now? But is that useful to, to take something known and use yourself within reference to it? So it's a bit tricky because if you lead in with it, we're the Uber for X, then you've automatically pigeonholed yourself. And if it's not Uber and it's like some obscure technology that not everybody knows they're not gonna get it, you've automatically compared yourself. So I could definitely see you using it as a support later on. Just think of this as the uh, Nespresso for, uh, for cocktails or whatever, you know, so does that exist by the way, because if it does, well, that's um, what he's, he's trying to do. He's trying to do like this vending machine for cocktail, like tell him I'll invest. Like, yeah, yeah, here you go. I'll call him back. I'll say you have an investor. So, <laughs> so, but it's, it's, so you, you, you can, if it's something that's a bit out there and a bit obscure, you can then pull on that as a reference, but let that be your supporting statement. So, and then they go, ah, okay. Now I see what you mean, but don't make it like a competing thing. And sometimes it's like the Uber for that. What do you even mean by that? It means a driver. It means, oh, that there's like a rotating set. Like you need to make sure the metaphor is right and not confusing them even more. I want to go into the quick pitch now because, and this has definitely been my experience where you think you have 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 15 minutes, and then you arrive and they're like, right, really sorry, really sorry. You've got, I, I can give you 10. Or really, I mean, I've done a, even in podcast interviews, not even in pitching, you know, I think we've, we've got an hour together. I come on and they're like, I've got 18 minutes, like your ability to be able to take what you have planned and have a shortened version ready to go. I think is one of the most underestimated tools in your arsenal. And you even said, you know, you find yourself in an elevator with somebody, the right person at the, you know, at the seemingly the wrong time, but could be the perfect time. Do you have something ready to go? What does a quick pitch look like? What are the me mechanics of it? Okay, so first of all, when you have less time, doesn't mean cut off your head to let your body just fit it, okay? You don't, it's like when, when you have a picture and it says this picture, this image is too big, reduce it. You don't cut a piece of the picture, you reduce the resolution. So it's not that you're cutting away a chunk of your pitch. You're taking your pitch and you're just condensing it down. Do not give up the story. Just shorten it a bit. Instead of going into the whole detailed thing about that and just say, you know, my father, when I was 17, got a heart attack out of the blue and it completely changed my family's life. And like him, there are 66 billion people worldwide who will have a heart attack this year and it's the number one killer. The problem is most people will get it out of the blue and that's what we're trying to avoid. So you're taking the story and kind of just like getting it down to its basic elements and then we've created A and then, you know, go into the, the that. So you, 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 
you, you just condense it and then your hope is they're going to want to hear more. It's a teaser. It's like, oh, that's fascinating. I need to hear more. Tell me more. And if they're not interested, they'll go, you know, that sounds great. Good luck with that. And that's okay. Let them go. Don't waste your time on people that are not really interested in what you're doing. I love the idea of having it in your back pocket because believe me from experience and I've been in meetings before where you think suddenly you've got two minutes that you weren't expecting and you've got no idea how to most powerfully use it to have it in your back pocket is again, massive asset. Um, and one of my, my final questions, the red flags, you, you said something and I just think it's worth, it's worth talking about for a second, which is when you pitch, if you have questions, don't make excuses and don't argue. And those two things, again, I have seen, um, I have probably done, I can't remember any, but I would have blocked it out of my memory. What do we do instead? So we're pitching, someone interrupts us, they find a flaw, they find a hole, they have a question we don't have an answer to or not, you know, a great answer just yet. How do we not step into the arguing or making excuses? Oh, it's, it's practice. It's a lot. And it's like coding yourself with Teflon. First of all, it's understanding that their job is to ask difficult questions. And one of the reasons they're asking you this might be to see how you respond under fire, because as a founder or as a business owner, you're going to be under fire and you need to be able to hold your own. And so never argue. So one of the worst things we can say is yes, but change it to yes. And so I hear what you're saying and I think, or I feel this. So you're joining what they're saying. Um, you should try to have as many answers to questions as possible. And I have a whole section in the book that's like hundred plus investor questions that you will need to be able to answer. Maybe not all of them at once, but the more prepared you are, the less you'll be taken off guard. They asked a question, then you don't know the answer. Say, you know what? I, that is a really great question. I don't have all the data. Can I get back to you? And that's fine. And, and it's, you can't say that for every question. You know, you, you, you can't get off the hook for everything, but that, that usually is fine. If they're arguing with you and they have said the most ridiculous, asinine, blatantly stupid thing, ask yourself, is it better to be smart or right? Are you going to gain anything by proving them the blathering idiot that they probably are? Likely not. If anything, you're going to look like a blathering idiot yourself to everybody else in the room because you're going to be the one that lost your cool. And investors talk to each other. They do. So it's better to keep your cool and say, you know, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. And from our experience, it's this and this and that. And it's okay if they're not the right fit, let it go. They're likely not going to invest. You hold your own with grace, with a smile. Don't feel the need to argue. Just don't. It just, it just, it just, I've seen it happen and it never ends well. It doesn't. It doesn't. And the same goes for on the stage. You know, if you, as soon as you set yourself in an adversarial relationship with the people that you're there to connect with, um, it, it derails. It spirals. It spirals out Nothing of control. Mm, no, no, no. And also, you know, going back to, you know, the hero and the villain, like, you know, your job is not to set up the relationship of hero and villain between, you know, people in the room. Your job is to highlight the hero and the villain that you're talking about, not set up a whole, a whole different dynamic. Oh, thank you so much. There's 
so much information there for anybody who's looking to pitch an idea, a product, a business. I'm going to close off with, you know, if there's somebody out there who's, and I can think of three or four people at the top of my head who have to pitch over the next kind of few weeks, something that's important, something that's game changing, something that can make a massive difference. What's the one thing, like if tomorrow they listen to this, finish their car journey, go back into the office tomorrow, what's the one thing, like one thing I'm going to remember and do something about? Audience perspective. Think about it through the eyes of your audience. It's not about you. Think about the villain that is plaguing your audience and and empathize with them. That's that's the key to everything. If you can, I think Henry Ford said that the the one secret to success is to be able to see your point of view alongside someone else's. So if you can truly look at the world through their lens and understand that your experience is not their experience and really try to figure out what it is that they need to hear, everything else will fall into place. And tell stories, stories stick, stories stick, stories stick. Oh, if, if there's one common theme through the four years of this podcast, if we, you know, if we have not hammered that home often enough, you know, stories rule everything. We are driven by, inspired by, committed to act by stories. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank so you. This was delightful. What, it's so nice talking to someone who lives and breathes stories because it's it's like a whole other level of, of conversation because you know this stuff inside out so we can really get in. And we've drilled into a lot. This is a lot to unpack. I feel that way from a preparation point of view, actually, because usually I'm diving into someone's world and their expertise, which isn't necessarily my expertise, which is part of where the magic lives, right? Doing exactly what you do, which is, you know, I'll take your world and I'll put it in my language. And hopefully, you know, by me doing that, it makes it accessible to everybody else. But with these types of conversations, you know, my prep is so easy because your world is my world. And I already have a ton of questions that I want to dive into and I don't have to navigate a whole separate world. So this go. has been a pleasure and, and a joy. Thank you Likewise. so much. Likewise. Thank you, Julie. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.